Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. marks our second message and journey summer sermon series uh, through the book of Proverbs. Now, I've got to say, if you missed last Sunday's sermon, then I highly recommend that you take a moment to watch it on YouTube sometime this week, because in that sermon, uh, we got an important overview for how to read the book of Proverbs uh, for all it's worth. Uh, We touched on how Proverbs belongs to the wisdom genre in the Bible, and this matters because genre is what sets our expectations for the way that we're intended to understand uh, different books of the Bible. Uh, We saw that wisdom in the Bible offers principles, not promises, patterns, not specifics, and life skills, not advice. And compared to reading biblical law, prophecy, or historical narrative, reading biblical wisdom is quite different. Uh, We also looked into Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, which introduces the book's title, the book's purpose, and the book's motto. And we even examined a few of the recurring archetypes in Proverbs, like the wise, the prudent, the simple, and the fool. All in all, Proverbs invites us to recognize that revering the Lord is the true beginning of knowledge, whereas resisting the Lord is the path to foolishness. For today's message, we're going to unpack some of the wisdom Proverbs teaches with respect to money. Um, But before we do, I want us to take a moment to understand how to biblically apply Proverbs to our everyday lives. And for that, if you look at your Bibles or your bulletins, I really want to focus us in on Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. You know, here we have a really incredible proverb that I know a lot of wise Christians have committed to memory, and it's also a great model proverb to teach us how to apply other proverbs that we encounter in this series. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, revere the Lord, as we saw last week, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, I hope that you can see that there's a pattern to the way most Proverbs are written. In this case, there's a wisdom principle that we're instructed to practice followed by a probable outcome that will happen if we practice it faithfully. For instance, in verses 5 through 6, the wisdom principle that we're instructed to practice is to trust the Lord more than we trust ourselves. And then if we faithfully practice this wisdom principle, the probable outcome is that God will make our paths straight. Now, looking at verses 7 through 8, the wisdom principle that we're given there is to fear the Lord, to revere the Lord by turning from evil. And again, if we practice that wisdom principle faithfully, the probable outcome is that it will heal and refresh us. While not every proverb follows this exact pattern, most of them do, 
again, it's important to recognize that Proverbs teaches principles, not promises. Proverbs is God's wisdom manual inviting us to live skillfully in God's world for his glory. It's not a secret formula for a better life. The amazing part about Proverbs is that anyone can put this book into practice. Proverbs is for everyone. Proverbs really only requires two steps. Step one, faithfully practice the wisdom principle. Step two, trust the outcome to God. Again, step one, you've got to identify and practice the wisdom principle in each biblical proverb. And step two, you've got to entirely entrust the results of your practice to God. Now, many perceive that true wisdom is something that's far-reaching. It's hard to grasp, and the ordinary person isn't ever going to get true wisdom. But this is not the case with God's wisdom in the Bible. The book of Proverbs contains thousands of these wisdom instructions, and that might sound overwhelming at first. But just imagine for a moment if you were to approach just ten or five or even just one of these Proverbs in this book with the same level of intensity that you would a college degree or an exercise regimen or a job interview. Imagine if you followed these two steps with respect to a handful of your favorite Proverbs every day for a year. Think about that. Perhaps you might discern just three wisdom principles that really speak to you, and then you recite these principles to yourself every morning and every day, and then you push yourself to practice them every single moment that you can. I'm sure that if any one of us here were to actually do this, then we'd be testifying to others a year from now that God surely did increase our wisdom. But as many of you know, even simple and easy things can become hard. So why then is it hard for us to grow in biblical wisdom? Well, it's not because what Proverbs instructs us to do is particularly difficult. It's because there are so many paths out there vying for our attention in life. And these other paths may look scenic to us at first, but they lead us away from the true wisdom of God. Now, I confessed last week that, you know, sometimes documentaries put me to sleep. But others really do grip my attention. Apparently, there's a whole bunch of documentaries out there on the world's most dangerous roads. It's insane. I mean, literally insane the kind of places that some departments of transportation have decided to build a road. And here's an image behind me of just three of these dangerous roads. Um, on the left, you've got this crazy road that somebody built over the ocean. That's not a bridge. That's a death trap. You know, apparently the waves get so high here, it can knock vehicles right into the guardrails. And when a big swell comes, the seawater causes all the cars to lose their traction on that steep grade hill, and they just start slipping and speeding up uncontrollably into one another. It's a disaster, but someone built that. Then in the center image, 
we've got this picture of a winding mountain nightmare. This road doesn't really have guardrails. It has teeny tiny guard blocks to keep buses from flipping off the side of a cliff. It seems that any small amount of fog or mist or rain would turn this scenic road into a total death trap. And last but not least, on the right up here, we've got a road built under 30 feet of snow. You know, there's nothing scenic about this one. It's just been built alongside what appears to be an avalanche zone. But clearly, these drivers in the photo don't seem to mind. You know, after watching just a few of these documentaries, like on Netflix and YouTube, I've determined that the saying, if you build it, they will come, must be true. Because in all three of these photos, you see very real people driving on these very dangerous roads. Now, the wisdom of the world is a lot like driving on a scenic yet dangerous road. God has put a big warning sign out there that says, drive at your own peril, and yet we're tempted to drive down these winding paths anyways. One of the reasons Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is so helpful is that it reminds us that we have a God who will make our paths straight. If we truly trust God, then God will give us directions so we don't end up lost, wrecked, or ruined along all the paths of the world. Not only is a straight path safer than a winding path, but a straight path is the fastest way to get to a destination. Now, last week I said that the book of Proverbs can only get us so far, and I really did mean that. It can only get us so far because it is Old Testament wisdom that anticipates the New Testament Savior. Proverbs sets us on a path that ultimately drives us to Jesus Christ. You see, Proverbs prepares us for Christ by teaching us the virtues of Christ. Again, Proverbs prepares us for Christ by teaching us the virtues of Christ. What we're going to come and see in this message is that the wisdom of Proverbs is anticipatory of the wisdom of Jesus. So if we were to add perhaps a third step for practicing Proverbs, it would be to look to Jesus for help and inspiration. All of the paths of this world may be tempting and distracting, and it may be hard for us to consistently and faithfully commit to practicing biblical wisdom, but the good news is that Jesus has come into this world to help us. Jesus models for us perfectly what it looks like to practice wisdom along the straight and narrow path to eternal life. So when we acknowledge him, he will make our paths straight even with respect to our money. Throughout its 31 chapters, there are over 100 proverbs in this book about money. And when it comes to the New Testament, about one quarter of Jesus' parables had to do with the subject of money. Now, when I say money, I don't just mean currency like coins and dollar bills. I'm referring more holistically to our wealth, our assets, our resources in general, not just a dollar figure in a bank account. The Bible has a lot to teach us about wisdom with our money, 
But I'd be remiss not to mention that its teachings have also been taken advantage of by other teachers to con people out of their wealth. This is one of the reasons why I've prefaced this message and spent so much time in last week's message with a focus on how to read Proverbs for all it's worth. Because if you don't read the book of Proverbs carefully in the way that it's intended to be understood, you might find yourself quickly drifting or swept up into the idea that God promises to make you rich and prosperous on this side of heaven if you just do X, Y, and Z. But the Bible is not a get-rich-quick scheme. And anyone who treats it as such is tarnishing the truth of God for others. Rather, money is something physical that God can use to teach us about things that are spiritual. In our country, we depend on money for just about anything. Food, education, health, entertainment, gas, housing, travel, it all costs money. In 1864, the Union Army motto from the Civil War was minted for the first time ever onto the two-cent piece, in God we trust. Then in the 1950s, President Dwight Eisenhower passed a law requiring in God we trust to appear on all forms of American currency. While some modern historians like to speculate as to, you know, what's the secular rationale behind this, history tells us that President Abraham Lincoln's treasury secretary at the time was actually a devout Christian man. In fact, Secretary Chase was the one who commissioned in God we trust on the two-cent piece. At the start of this project in 1861, he wrote this to the U.S. Mint. He said, No nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. You will cause a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay with a motto expressing in the fewest, tersest terms possible this national recognition. I don't think it's a coincidence that this motto was chosen by Secretary Chase. He wanted there to be a physical reminder pointing to God on the money with which everyday Americans use. And it's interesting that when we look at Proverbs 3, 5, which reads, trust in the Lord with all your heart, it's soon followed by wisdom instructions about our money in verses 9 through 10. So what I'd like to do next is survey three Proverbs about money. And for each one of them, we're going to reflect on applying wisdom principles they teach, as well as how they ought to drive us to Christ. Now, the first proverb on money we're going to look at is right there in Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. After calling us to trust the Lord in verse 5 and to fear the Lord in verse 7, Verse 9 picks up saying, honor the Lord. Trust the Lord, fear the Lord, honor the Lord. How? Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
following the pattern from verses 5 through 8, we need to step one, identify the wisdom principle, and step two, identify the probable outcome from God. So what's going on here in verses 9 through 10? Well, quite clearly we can see that the wisdom principle is that the wise honor God with their money. It's as simple as that. When God is honored with our wealth from the world, then the probable outcome is that God will provide for us even in the world. Again, the wise honor God with their money. Verse 9, if you look there, specifies that it's not the last fruits of your labor, but the first fruits of all your produce that God deserves. This means honoring God with your giving isn't something you wait to do until the end of the year. You don't wait until after you've counted all your beans, taken your cut, and had your fill. Wise giving to God is supposed to be an honor to God, not a charity collection for God. You see, God doesn't really need our money. What he desires is to see our honor, our faith, and our respect. This is why giving is something you do before you do anything else with your money. The activity of tithes and offerings is intended to be a real-world demonstration of your confidence in God's provision. Simply put, if you don't honor God with your wealth, your first fruits, and all your produce, then you should not expect to be surprised when you have difficulty with finances, debt, or poor money-making decisions. It's correlated with wisdom. Like I said before, the wisdom from Proverbs isn't all that complicated to practice. But what makes Proverbs hard is that the world is full of other financial paths vying for our attention and our money. Today, the average American Christian gives less than 2.5% of their income away. During the Great Depression, the average American Christian gave over 3% of their income away. What was considered a faithful tithe in Old Testament times and throughout much of 2,000 years of church history was more than 10%. Again, the reason that we need to honor God with our money isn't because God needs it. Rather, the activity of self-sacrifice benefits our souls, it grows us in wisdom, and it teaches us to rely on God to provide. Marshall Segal, a writer for Desiring God Ministries, had this to say about giving, and I really found it helpful. In an article called Aim All You Have at Heaven, he writes, if we do not learn how to lay up treasures in heaven, we will inevitably settle for the treasures of earth and miss out on something far more lasting and satisfying. What he says here is true. If we don't learn to honor God with our money on this side of heaven, then we will certainly miss out on something far more lasting and satisfying in the future. For example, when we consider the life of Jesus, no one sacrificed more for God. Jesus may not have had financial riches in terms of the world, 
But his perfect righteousness and his spiritual wealth exceeded the value of anything in the world. Looking to Hebrews 10.12, we can see Proverbs through more of a Christ-centered lens. Hebrews 10.12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus honored God by paying our spiritual debt for all time. That was something that no amount of money could do. He generously gave up his life, which was infinitely more precious than stocks or diamonds or gold, to redeem us from the pit. And now, God the Father has honored God the Son by seating him at the right hand of power over all things. In a very real sense, Jesus has been set over the kingdom of heaven with barns of plenty and vats that are bursting. What Proverbs and Jesus teach us with respect to our money is that, number one, we must honor God before we honor ourselves. Again, you must honor God before you honor yourself with your money. This is the path to wisdom, biblical wisdom, with our finances. You know, I think that the anxiety people indulge when it comes to giving is the thought that they won't have enough for themselves. But if you truly want to grow in biblical wisdom, then you must demonstrate that you trust God more than you trust yourself. And that's what Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 teaches. And as human beings, there's perhaps no better way to test our trust than to test what we do with our money. Wisdom, as we saw last week, is a skill. It's a skill that requires training. Wisdom is not a quick-fix solution that you can just learn overnight. So if you're here today and you feel like, you know, you haven't been honoring God faithfully with your wealth, then chances are, according to Proverbs, you're probably not in a position with your finances to just start tithing 10% of what God provides year after year. Unfortunately, your barns aren't filled with plenty, and your vats aren't bursting with wine. Someone who's seriously out of shape would most likely hurt himself if he just woke up and started running a marathon. In the same way, someone who hasn't faithfully honored God with their money could also seriously ruin themselves and end up in more debt if they're not careful. Most people can't just go from giving no percent to faithfully giving 10% to God overnight. Some, but not most. But without a doubt, every single follower of Jesus should give and they should give regularly out of the first fruits that God has provided them with. When the world sees the church, they should see people of all socioeconomic levels overflowing with financial generosity. In order for Christians to do this, though, it means that like Jesus, we must choose to live beneath our means so that the radical generosity of the church can challenge cultural norms. So if you don't give at all, 
then my challenge to you would be at least to strive for the cultural average of 2.5%. Before you run a marathon, at least try to hit a relatively low American benchmark for generosity. And I say low because other cultures like in Pakistan readily give 3 to 5% of their annual incomes away to charity. But if you're already giving like our American culture gives, then start challenging yourself to exceed cultural expectations like Christ. Prayerfully consider maybe increasing your giving 1% every year. True life skills take baby steps and perseverance to develop. And wisdom with finances isn't something that God just gives overnight. But if you're not at the point yet to where you can reach the Bible's benchmark of 10%, then prudence would dictate that someone wise with their money would make a plan. And they would even make a long-term plan, and they'd work that plan to get there. Giving is an activity that invites us deeper into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So before you practice any of these other biblical principles for money, be sure that you first establish for yourself a plan to tithe where you feel you're truly honoring God with all that he's provided you with. Now the second proverb we're going to look at is Proverbs 13, 7 through 8. As we just saw, the first proverb directed us to wise activity with our money, namely to honor God through generosity. The second proverb we're going to look at directs us to wise character with our money, namely humbleness. If you look there, Proverbs 13, 7 through 8 says, One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. What this proverb is describing is a foolish man who boasts and a wise man who is humble. The foolish man pretends to be rich, perhaps to fake it until they make it in the world, or to wield the illusion of influence in a group, or to con people into an easy investment. But the rich man pretends to be poor, recognizing that there's greater wisdom and greater security in humility. All in all, the wisdom principle that we see in this proverb is that the wise are humble with their money. Again, the wise are humble with their money. Whereas honoring God with your money is an activity that God calls us to do, this here is a character trait that God calls us to cultivate. If you're loud about your worldly riches, then you need to learn to be quieter. And if you're quiet about your worldly riches, then don't feel pressured by the world to get loud. The probable outcome from God here is security. For you see, the poor person pretending to be rich is insecure. Yet the rich person pretending to be poor is secure beyond measure. We see this in verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. When thieves, bandits, or cryptocurrency scammers seek to steal someone else's hard-earned money, then those criminals usually look for marks with visible and easy wealth to take. 
If a criminal is going to kidnap someone for a ransom, as in verse 8, then they're likely going to want a hostage who's worth a decent sum of money. The point here is that when we boast in our worldly riches, whether they're real or not, in either case, we make ourselves an easy target for the wicked. But when we're quiet and humble with our riches, no matter how much they may be, then even a wealthy man who appears poor can hear less of a threat. Thus, our humbleness with our money is a path that God gives to security. But boasting about how rich you are is a path to ruin. This is one of the problems with false teachers these days who preach prosperity from the Bible whilst buying lots and lots and lots of expensive, shiny things. These teachers set themselves up like little celebrity kings and then ask for even more money to spend on their extravagant lifestyles. But what we see is that a true and righteous king is one that learns to be humble and how to escape the public's eye. This is, in fact, the plot of Mark Twain's novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Originally, this American classic was a historical fiction about Prince Edward VI, and it's been remade and retold in all sorts of formats. Set in 1547, Mark Twain's story features two young boys born on the same day who are nearly identical in appearance. Tom Canty, a poor pauper, lives with his abusive, alcoholic father in the ghettos of London. And then Prince Edward VI of England is the son of the rich King Henry VIII, and he's next in line for the throne. Without getting into all the details, the prince and the pauper, they switch places. Although poor, Tom learns that pretending to be rich isn't quite an easy life. He quickly finds himself out of his depth, overwhelmed by endless social customs and political intrigue. He realizes that bringing justice to the world requires more than just wealth and luxury. Although rich, Edward learns that pretending to be poor isn't a carefree life. Rather, it means suffering all the horrible abuses of the world that his royal birthright had protected him from. The moral of the story is not that Tom was better off staying poor and Edward was better off staying rich. That's not the moral at all. Rather, Mark Twain's moral in the story is that both rich and poor in the world must first learn to be merciful towards one another if the disparities of class and equality are ever going to change. Ultimately, mercy is the path to justice, not money. Proverbs 13 and the prince and the pauper should ring true of your mind of 2 Corinthians 8, 9. If you look there, God's word says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." At the end of The Prince and the Pauper, Tom and Edward switch back. King Henry passes away and Edward becomes the next king. But rather than letting Tom go back into his poverty, 
Edward gives Tom a title and appoints him as his royal right-hand man. Something similar happens to those of us who have been spiritually rescued from the world by Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, was born into this world poor, but he was rich beyond measure. He suffered, suffered some of the worst abuses that anyone can endure, and yet he did so all to show mercy to those of us incapable of making it to heaven on our own merit. Jesus knew hunger. Jesus knew pain. Jesus knew grief, knew torture. He knew death. He stepped down from heaven in order that through his poverty we might become rich. Proverbs 13.8 says, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth. Well, Jesus is the one with limitless wealth who became poor in the world in order to give his life as a ransom for many. Throughout his ministry, he never once boasted in his riches as the prince of heaven, but lived humbly and showed great mercy to all who were in need. If we want to get the most out of Proverbs, then we need Jesus' help. The character we need to cultivate to be wise with our money is exemplified foremost in Christ. God's Word shows us that we're to stay humble by making more of Christ's riches than our riches. Again, stay humble by making more of Christ's riches than your riches. I mean this kind of in two senses. In one sense, we're to make more of Christ's riches by boasting in Jesus before we boast in ourselves. But in another sense, we're to make more of Christ's riches by reproducing Jesus' message of salvation to others. We're to tell others the good news that Jesus is the Lord and Savior who has made a straight path for faithful sinners into the holy presence of God. Jesus has given his life as a ransom, and it's available to anyone who will turn from sin, turn from the paths of the world, and trust in him. Practicing this wisdom principle leads to contentment and security. When we recognize that there is nothing that we can do with our own strength, our money, our finances to rescue ourselves from sin, whether we're born rich princes or whether we're born poor paupers, it leads us to wholly depend on the riches of God's saving grace and Jesus Christ for salvation. And thankfully, there's no better security for your soul than resting all your faith in the Son of God. Now the final proverb I want us to look at is Proverbs 13, 22. I feel there's an intentional progression to these three proverbs that we're looking at. Until you're truly honoring God with your money, and until you're truly humble with your money, then you're not quite ready yet for Proverbs 13, 22. We'll just call this the advanced course. But it says there, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The wisdom principle here is pretty direct. The wise pass on money to the next generation. Now again, the word for money that we're using here is in the broader sense, your wealth, 
assets, properties, and resources, not just plastic and paper currency. It's just in the United States, we can convert anything into dollar figures. Good people desire to leave a good heritage for their children, and this is not a bad thing. We do, in fact, live in a material world with material needs. So it's wise to store up the kind of wealth that you can pass on to the next generation. However, the sinful thing to do is to spend all your money and then leave your family and your descendants to pay off all your debts and taxes after you die. Now, it's important that we view this wisdom principle about leaving an inheritance in light of the first two Proverbs. First off, it can be really easy to self-justify that a reason you don't honor God with your money is because you're aspiring to honor your kids and grandkids with your money. Now, that isn't entirely selfish, but I want to warn you that accumulating a big inheritance to pass on can easily become idolatrous if you're not wise and careful. But at the same time, God doesn't need your family going destitute to fund the local mission of the church with your tithes and offerings. It's not an inherently sinful thing to store up money to pass on to the next generation one day. In fact, it's a wise thing to do. And the wisest person, here's where it gets really interesting, the wisest person will discern how to do both. They will discern how to honor God with their wealth and how to honor their children and the next generation with their wealth. The book of Proverbs is often concerned with both material needs and moral needs in this world. However, they require balance. We should strive to honor God with our first fruits, but nowhere does God demand that you give up your family's entire farm. We need to grow in spiritual wisdom, but we need to do so without deprecating the physical well-being of our families that we've been called to care for. A wise man like King Solomon accumulated a huge inheritance to pass on to the lineage of David, but he did so while also giving generously to the construction of the temple for the Ark of the Covenant. God provided for both. And in wisdom, Solomon mastered both of these principles for money. What's important for us as followers of Jesus, though, is that we leave the right kind of inheritance behind. And this is because the right kind of inheritance can shape someone's destiny. In The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien, the character Frodo is left with a massive inheritance by his uncle Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo leaves Frodo his property, his treasures, trophies from old adventuring days, and even the great ring of power, the one ring to rule them all forged by Sauron in the heart of Mount Doom. Even though Frodo had received everything he needed from Bilbo to live a comfortable life of luxury in the Shire, Bilbo left his nephew with something far more profound. He left his nephew with a legacy of adventure and a sense of destiny. So just as his uncle had done, Frodo found himself leaving the Shire behind to set off on the adventure of a lifetime. Leaving the right inheritance 
can shape the next generation's destiny. But as the New Testament teaches, leaving an inheritance is more than just leaving behind material provisions. It's also about leaving a spiritual legacy. Now, we're actually going to get into what Proverbs teaches about legacy next week for Father's Day. But for our purposes right now, I want to invite you to look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. These verses read, In him, that is in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And Ephesians 1 goes on to remind us that the inheritance that we've obtained is of far more value than Amazon, Apple, or Tesla. It's a spiritual inheritance, and it comes from the saving grace of God. By his perfect wisdom, Jesus himself puts Proverbs 13.22 into practice for our sake. Jesus is more than the good man. Jesus is the better man in Proverbs who leaves a spiritual inheritance for all the generations of mankind. So what does this practically look like for us? Well, if we want to be wise with our money, we need to first honor God before we honor ourselves. We need to second stay humble by making more of Christ's riches than our riches And third, we need to strive to leave a spiritual inheritance, not just a financial inheritance. The wisdom of Proverbs anticipates the wisdom of the Savior. It's good to pass on money to the next generation, yet it is even better if you do so with a vibrant spiritual legacy. Worldly riches cannot save souls, but God can use your testimony to help lead your kids and your grandkids and others to faith in Jesus Christ. Striving to leave a spiritual legacy should be worth more to us than all the gold that this world can offer. So as we bring this sermon to a close, I hope that you can see that your wisdom with your money is a reflection of your relationship with God. In fact, the way that we use our money says a lot about the way that we follow Jesus. Money can be a cruel master or a dangerous idol that can destroy the lives of rich and poor alike. But money can also be a powerful resource and a merciful ally that God can use to redeem and help us grow in Christ-like wisdom. So remember that when it comes to money, trust in the Lord with all your heart And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray. Father God, you are the generous giver of all good gifts. Lord, we love because you first loved us. We give generously because you generously give us every good and perfect gift that is from above. Lord, help us to rest in you, 
trusting that you will hold us fast in this world no matter what. God, I pray for those of us here who might be struggling financially to get by, whether through debts, unexpected bills, or job loss, whatever it may be. God, please grant us all peace and show us your powerful provision. God, help us to remember that you are the master who supplies our every need. Lead us all to look more towards Jesus, your son, for wisdom with our money. Let us not forget that he gave his life as a ransom for our sins. By your Holy Spirit, make us more generous and more merciful like Jesus truly is. Let our giving be a humble act of worship that ultimately honors you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and that all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.